Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. Hi, and welcome back to the show. You're listening once again to truecondos.com. On today's show, I have a very special guest, and her name is Jeannie Shim. Jeannie's the president of Housing Lab Toronto, which is a consulting company that works with uh, mostly with property developers in Toronto and condo developers in particular. Jeannie's got over 22 years of experience in the Toronto real estate market, and she's been involved in every aspect of the development process from start to finish over the years that she's been in the industry. And so we talked about a lot of different things today, but a couple of things I think that are most interesting to the condo investor from our conversation. When one would be the, around her, um, her take on uh, where Toronto sort of stands and how Toronto compares to other world cities, especially with our real estate market. Jeannie uh, does a lot of traveling, and she actually leads trips with um, people in the development industry. Um, overseas into cities around the world where they go and they learn about what other cities and other developers are doing um, with their housing markets. And so she's got a very unique perspective on Toronto and how what makes us unique and, and uh, what makes us special versus other cities in the world. And again, it's just another reminder. I'll let you hear what she has to say about that, but it's another great reminder of why we're investing in Toronto and why in particular we're investing in the downtown core of Toronto we are a very unique city worldwide. We need to uh, really recognize that as Torontonians. We often, I think, um, I don't know if it's because we're Canadian or, or just uh, it's hard to see ourselves for who we are, but um, we are a very unique city in the world. We have a very unique opportunity um, here as Canadians, as Torontonians, to be able to afford and invest in a great, great world-class city, which is basically impossible to do for most people anywhere else in the world. Um, but I, I won't steal all her thunder on that. And the other key point that we talk about is families, families and condos and larger condos. And um, Jeannie is very passionate about this particular issue. And she's done a lot of work in this area. And she also is uh, personally uh, raising her family in a condo downtown. So we talked about that and how the city and how we as city builders and investors and people in the industry can affect change and, and bring more families downtown and make that a, uh, a, a bigger possibility and a better option for people, uh, for families to do, but also how we as condo investors can potentially take advantage of this trend and the fact that there are more and more people, more and more families who are looking to live downtown. Um, and how we can take advantage of that as condo investors. So those are some of the issues we talked about today on the show. I won't uh, talk any longer. We'll get to the interview itself. For all the show notes on this episode and links to Reach Jeannie and her company Housing Lab, you can head on over to truecondos.com forward slash Jeannie, J-E-A-N-H-Y, Jeannie. And uh, all the show notes will be there. Okay, so here it is, my interview with Jeannie Shim. Thanks for listening to the True Condos Podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Jeannie Shim. Jeannie is the president of Housing Lab Toronto, which is an independent housing research and consulting company. 
That is Rethinking How We Grow Our City and Communities. Jeannie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Excited to have you here and, and to chat with you about uh, what you do and, and the condo market and a lot of different things. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got started in real estate? Um, Andrew, I've been working in the condominium development industry, uh, primarily in the Toronto area for the past 22 years. I got into the business back uh, way back in 1992 at the tail end of the market crash um, when you know we were doing receivership sales for banks. And I've kind of been, uh, I've been working in all aspects of condominium development. I started out on the brokerage side, uh, doing admin, quite frankly, in sales centers. When I graduated in 92, there was no job. And then uh, I've worked, uh, like I said, primarily on the, the developer side since then with all the major uh, brokerages. I've worked on the, uh, the um, market analysis side a lot with Barry Line Consultants. I ran Urbanation. So I've really seen kind of the whole business from, uh, from all the different angles, you know, construction, development, uh, finance, uh, market analysis. So that's essentially um, kind of what I've been doing the last 22 years in the city. How did uh, how did it how did how did Housing Lab come about? Like you decided to go off on your own and start this company. You've worked in house for developers. You worked for other consulting companies. How did your your latest move with Housing Lab Toronto? How did that come about? And why did you decide to start Housing Lab? We started up Housing Lab Toronto uh, just over two years ago, and uh, the, I left a, a big uh, developer in order to start up the company. What I realized, uh, kind of looking at the landscape, is that there were uh, growing needs, housing needs out there that were not being met, that, uh, you know, the, the industry the last few years really been taken over by uh, investors. Not a bad thing. Uh, they really supplied a lot of the, the much badly, badly needed kind of new rental stock for the city. But I also saw that uh, no one was really speaking to residents, to real people, and you know, listening to and understanding their housing needs, and uh, it's a different type of buyer. We call them end users. It's a different way of selling. They they require they they're looking for different types of product. But you know, I realized that in order to kind of uh, in order to grow the city and to provide a, a variety of housing types, that uh, with my company and using research and my experience, that I could start to perhaps influence city builders. Uh, to help them understand these new market opportunities and to start delivering um, a, a wider variety of housing types that I think are really needed to build healthy communities. You can't just have one type of housing type. You really need kind of the full kind of life cycle housing uh, that will accommodate people, you know, as they age and allow them to age in place. Um, you said something interesting before we started recording about um, sort of what makes your company different from other consulting companies out there? Maybe you could expand on on, the, on what makes you different from the other consulting groups that are out there. Mm-hmm. I guess what I meant in terms of really talking to people is what we primarily do is really uh, listen to and engage with real residents uh, to kind of really understand their housing needs, their aspirations, their frustrations. And then when we work with clients, it really helps uh, that kind of guides are a lot of our recommendations and helps our, our clients to really understand uh, how to develop their product to, to really kind of, you know, hit the nail on the head and kind of really um, service kind of what, what the needs are out there. So it's quite unique out there in terms of 
consulting. And I felt that that is a white space that really no one was uh, doing much uh, research in that space. And, you know, some developers out there, they'll do market surveys. But the type of research we do is not just a, hey, here's a survey monkey survey. Do you want granite countertops or Caesar stone or do you want, you know, hardwood or laminate? Uh, those aren't the types of, you know, questions that I'm talking about when I talk about research. I'm talking about really understanding fundamentally people's values, their behaviors, their lifestyle, because all of those things ultimately inform your housing needs. You know, at the end of the day, as you probably know, Andrew, real estate is all about understanding people and what it is, what drives them, what, what you know, we spend a lot of time branding and trying to understand different target market types and in every industry, right? Because it's all about understanding what drives, um, you know, people's decisions. And it's not always rational behavior, right? As you know, in real estate, it's not only about what are mortgage rates and how much money do I make. Often there's a lot of other aspirational, uh, uh, you know, um, values to consider as well. So yeah, so with Housing Lab Toronto, it's really, we take a very holistic approach to understanding uh, market opportunities and demand, understanding that it's more than just, you know, some, you know, numbers uh, that uh, the Bay Street guys can crunch. That It's about, you know, understanding people. And as you probably know from your work and your clients, is sometimes, you know, they do things that, are, that seem a bit irrational, but it's because uh, often it's driven by values, behaviors, aspirations. Yeah, and uh, something very interesting you said to sort of summarize what you're saying is a lot of the other companies uh, are backward looking in terms of, you know, what's happened in the past versus you're all about looking forward. Yeah, uh, it's important to obviously understand, you know, what, who your competition is, how much they sold for, all of, obviously it's all that's important stuff, but, you know, if you're, uh, you know, if we're trying to push the envelope and, you know, set the benchmark a bit higher and trying to be a bit more innovative, that's where you need to start to get start to get a bit more creative and to really, you know, be forward thinking. I mean, not everyone's an early adopter. I'd say kind of in our industry, there's probably a handful of developers I would consider as early adopters, meaning that for various reasons, they will uh, take a bit more of a risk, whether it's because of the personalities in the company or whether because of their balance sheets or for various reasons. So like I said, it's not everybody, right? Not everybody can be a Steve Jobs, right? But uh, but that doesn't mean we don't try because, you know, we right. ultimately build a balance balanced neighborhoods, a well-rounded neighborhood. Let's talk about the market. I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, but everyone's always curious to hear different people's take on it. So is there a condo bubble in Toronto? What's What do you see? I've been asked this question, like, ever since I was running Urban Asia, and this was, like, well, well over 10 years ago. You know, I guess eventually the bubble, got, the bubble people will be right. But, uh, you know, I think what people... Uh, yeah. I mean, I think as Canadians, we tend to be very, uh, you know, I'm not going to say negative, but, you know, Canada is a very highly sought after country in terms of immigration. People are flocking here in numbers that when you visit other cities and, you know, I do, I lead all the build housing tours to other cities. Uh, uh, we visit, you know, other developers and they're just, they're flabbergasted when we tell them our, our housing, our, our growth numbers. And we take, kind of take it for granted in Toronto, right? I mean, our housing market has been so strong because we have consistently had such high and strong immigration. We forget that people want to move here. This is a great country. Yes, we have our issues of transit and infrastructure. But at the end of the day, it's a safe haven for uh, investment money. It's, it's a safe place to live. It's a place where people want to come here. So that really has, the whole time I've been in the business, like I said, I started in 92. We were at the tail end of a pretty bad recession. The market started picking up in the kind of mid-90s. A lot of that was driven by the handover of Hong Kong to China in 1997. And those global issues actually drove a lot of immigration investment here in the condo market in the mid-90s. I don't know if you remember, really started picking up a Scarborough, North York, ironically. It wasn't a downtown Toronto thing. 
uh, because that's where a lot of the money was coming uh, in order to invest in condominiums out there, uh, you know, as as people kind of moved here. And then uh, and then we've kind of, uh, but the immigration, and certainly as our economy started picking up, the immigration just remained quite strong. And the good thing with, uh, despite all the changes of governments, is that one consistent thing is all the governments, whether conservative or liberal, have remained very committed to um, an open-door policy and high levels of immigration, which is very important for our growth, right? You know, our birth, natural birth rate is falling and... Uh, um, so we really, really need that. And the reality is, is the more people we have moving into a city, they all need housing of one form or another, right? Whether it's rental or shared or low rise or high rise. So, and I think also immigration has been interesting because of its cultural impact. And that's mm-hmm. something I've seen is like a lot, if you look at, you know, I study all the immigration reports and where are people coming from, levels of education and all that. Because again, that all informs the type of Canadians and their potential housing needs. And if you look at the countries where most of our immigrants have been coming from, they're coming from countries where, for example, investing in a condo as a family investment is not unusual. Buying a condo for your kids to live in when they go to U of T is not culturally unusual. Um, Or um, raising your family in, in an apartment is not a culturally unusual thing. So I think that those are things, you know, real estate, you know, Bay Street bankers may not get it, but because, you know, they tend to crunch different types of numbers, um, whereas these other types of cultural things are, are much more intangible, right? But they have had a very big impact. So when people ask, is there a bubble, I think fundamentally at the end of the day, obviously markets have ups and downs, but housing demand has remained generally consistently strong. Uh, yes, affordability is getting a bit more challenging, but you know, people are finding creative solutions or they're actually renting perhaps longer than uh, than they normally would have. But then on the flip side, that's good for all our condo investors, right, who actually are looking for tenants. So yes. you know, I, I'm not a doom and gloom. I'm also, you know, I'm also realistic enough. But like I said, having t- traveled a lot and, you know, doing these housing tours and going to other cities, particularly in Europe, where they, they, would, they would love to have the kind of growth that we're having, uh, that just, you know, drives a lot of demand fundamentally. So Unless we see that drop off, or unless there's a major global recession, um, really, it's, uh, I'm not going to say the market's going to continue to grow and never decline, but I think this whole thing about a bubble is you have to really look at the fundamentals, right, that are driving our market, and we're not being driven by speculation, as you know. It, we're being driven by these are real people, um, yeah. you know, and real, whether they're, and even investors, they're real investors, right, as you probably know from some of your clients. They're buying and they're yep. renting. They're holding and renting these as, you know, as good long-term investments. Yeah. Um, speaking of your trips to other cities around the world, you mentioned you lead housing trips where you take developers and people in the industry to see what's going on in other cities. I think recently you were in Milan. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. So for the uh, Building Industry and Land Development Association, I'm a member. I volunteer and I organize our annual housing study trip. Uh, we've been to most of the cities in North America, you know, New York, Chicago, Miami, Vancouver, like all the big ones. Um, and overseas, I've taken the, the group to London. We've done Copenhagen, Malmo, Berlin, and this year we did Milan and Torino. Uh, the whole purpose is to go out there and just uh, it's to get inspired. You know, it's not that they do better things there. It's just that they do things differently. And it's about coming back with new ideas. And uh, so, yeah, it's actually it's a, it's a quite an interesting tour. We were just in Milan. And, uh, you know, the Italian economy is, uh, is not doing well. Uh, Milan is obviously in the heart of the industrial north and certainly doing better than uh, other parts of Italy. 
interesting, I mean, the, their housing, their condo market is really driven by, um, they're t- catering to the top 5% of the population, right? The luxury buyer. And even then, they've built whole communities, beautiful projects, but they're like 30% sold. So the whole way they finance their projects, is, everything's kind of very different. Um, but uh, but still, it was so worth it in terms of getting inspired and getting some ideas. But what was interesting fundamentally for the group was to see that uh, when you have a city that's not growing, you basically don't have much of a housing market. And that's certainly the case in Milan and even all these other cities we visited. When we tell people how many, you know, Toronto ads on average, it's not 100,000 anymore, probably 70 to 80,000 new people a year net. Uh, they just, they, you know, they just don't understand those numbers. Those are their annual growth numbers. So, uh, sorry, they're, uh, you know, like 10-year growth numbers. So, it's, um, yeah, so Milan was very interesting. A lot of really innovative stuff happening there. But uh, for the developers who went, it's like, how do you make the numbers work? Or because you're because you're catering to the luxury market, sure, you're selling at $1,000 a square foot. So that just gives you a lot more leeway <laughs> to do a lot more things, right? Right, right. Uh, then, then in the Toronto market where, you know, our market, it's, as you know, it has been and continues to be driven by that the mid-market product, right? You know, our average yes. price per square foot is not $1,000 a square foot. It's more in the, you know, what, 600s now, right? And uh, so, again, not as affordable as 10 years ago, but still relatively, um, you know, still relatively affordable. So based on your travels with uh, many trips you've been on, what can we learn from other cities and what, can other cities learn from Toronto? Like, what is it that Toronto does that's world class, and what uh, what is it that Toronto is lacking from your travels? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I always find it interesting that people from other, you know, we're the most active real estate market, and uh, certainly in the Western world. I mean, I know in China there's a lot more activity, but um, you know, and I think what what I've always found very unique about Toronto is yes, we have an affordable housing crisis. We do have long waiting lists. Undeniable, we have a problem with affordable housing. Yet, I've always maintained that we are the most affordable city to more people than any other major industrialized city in the world. I mean, I've lived and worked in London, England, and Washington, D.C., and I mean, Montreal is a different case. But in terms of, you know, when you look at, for example, London or Washington, we are more affordable to more people than any of these other major cities. Like, in London or New York, you know, where can you find a 32-year-old who can afford to buy uh, their their own home in the downtown core? You can't. Exactly. It's, it's just, so I think people, you know, and again, people may say, well, you know, but that's a 400-square-foot shoebox. I'm like, yeah, but you're 32 years old. You're single. You have no kids. You work 80 hours a week. You're, you're, but there's the fact that you own something and that you're able to. Yes. As much as there's all this criticism of units are too small, often it's the people, people only know what they know, right? Which sounds obvious. But when you're, if you look at the majority of our developers and architects and kind of the, the, the decision makers in our city, they tend to be of an older generation and they only know what they know. So when you're own, the only reality you know is your 5,000 square foot home with a three car garage and a cottage in Muskoka, it's understandable. You, have to, you don't get it, right? You don't get the, how can somebody live in 400 square feet? Right. Um, you know, I think that that's one thing I've noticed traveling around the world that uh, we do a very good job in delivering homes for real people. Uh, and that, like I said, that are relatively affordable. And yeah, the size is small, but you know, at the end of the day, when you're a first time buyer, you know, beggars can't be choosers, right? <laughs> like, sure, you would yeah. love the 2,000 square foot condo, but you, you know, you live within means at the time and we're delivering an amazing product in great locations. You think about it for a young yeah. person. Think of all yeah. the amazing downtown neighborhoods and the quality. Yes, there's issues with quality, but generally speaking, 
we are delivering, our industry delivers, you know, very high quality, good quality housing. So what can we learn from other cities? I think the biggest takeaway is certainly has been, uh, yeah, in London and Berlin, all these cities we've seen some pretty wacky and amazing architecture. But again, when you're looking at how much they're getting priced per square foot, of course, you have a lot more leeway to do the sexy things when you're set, when you're selling for $1,500 a square foot. Which we're, right. that's not our market, right? But the biggest thing, takeaway we've learned is that these other cities that we found, they do a much better job in designing the buildings, um, how they meet the street. Which I know Jennifer Keys Matt and her team in the city have been focusing a lot more on that, the streetscape, right? That, that yes. interface where the building meets the street. Right. Where, how do you design that? And in the past, we weren't doing a very good job. We are doing a better job now. But I think when you go to Europe, that's consistently what we've found is that that whole the, the relationship and how you integrate the buildings. It's not about the, necessarily the look of the building. That is that's a very subjective thing. It's about good planning and design to actually how it interfaces. And that's one thing we've learned. Also, the mid-rise buildings, their courtyard buildings. Those are all things that have been great takeaways. I know for the groups uh, that I've taken over the last few years. That's great. Let's talk about um, your work with the Children's Discovery Center. Um, for those who aren't familiar, what is it and why does it exist? How did it come about? Yeah. So the Children's Discovery Center is Toronto's first and only children's museum uh, geared specifically to kids under six. So how this came about was a variety of things. Uh, so 11 years ago, I was with visiting my nieces who were two years old at the time. We were, they live in San Francisco. We're the Bay Area Discovery Museum, and which is a children's museum. And I remember 11 years ago, and this is way before I had my daughter. My daughter has just turned six. So this is way before I even thought of having kids. And I remember at that time looking around going, holy crap, why doesn't Toronto have a children's museum? I was aware that there were children's museums in all other major cities. Even London, Ontario had one at back, way back when. And I always wondered, and I thought one day I'm going to bring this to Toronto because it doesn't exist, and that's just the type of person I am. I like to make things happen and, you know, kind of... Yeah. Uh, different things. And then uh, fast forward, I had my daughter and then uh, with my new company and, you know, and I'm raising my daughter in a condo right now living downtown. I grew up in the immigrant dream of the house in the suburbs and used to commute on the go train or drive, etc. But uh, we've chosen to stay downtown, which means we, um, you know, don't need as many cars. We can walk. We have other options, all the benefits. But then with my own daughter, what I realized, she just turned six this year, is that I realized that there was a baby boom. I saw it in my uh, own condos I was living in and the neighborhoods I live in, just walking around. And even more so now that my daughter's six, like the real condo baby boom is, is starting to hit now. But even six yeah. years ago, I noticed it. And uh, there is a, a growing group of people living in condos. You know, people are starting to have their kids a bit later in life as well. So there is that period of probably five to ten years at least where you're living the amazing single life downtown, right? Or, you know, couples with no kids. So, yeah, the good life. <laughs> people are inevitably people have kids. <laughs> I think yeah. perhaps there's more people today than a generation ago who choose not to have kids. But the reality is, is statistically speaking, you know, the, the stats show that two thirds of mar legally married and common law couples do end up having at least one child. So again, my research side, you know, I started researching into it, and I have the numbers to actually back up the, what I was seeing and experiencing is that there's a baby boom happening downtown. The numbers speak of it. So then with my daughter, I realized that, uh, again, having living with her, living downtown, is we had memberships at the ROM and the Science Center, like everywhere, right? But yeah. I realized that developmentally, and I've learned a lot as a parent, I'm not an early childhood development expert, what I've learned is that, obviously, 
kids' brains, they're not born with fully developed brains like we have, right? That it takes about 19 years for them to actually fully physiologically develop the brain. So I realized that taking Maya places was that, yeah, it was nice to go to ROM or the Science Center and have some kids' areas, but nothing was really geared to kids under six, like developmentally geared to them. Mm-hmm. Interactive, meaningful, engaging. And also when you look at, you know, camps or classes, it was like, oh, the ROM's got a Saturday morning class. You'd be like, oh, they have to be seven plus or the sleepover at the zoo or, you know, I'm sure you've had yeah. experience with your kids. Is that you're like, you get all excited and you realize that often yep. the older kids. Yeah. I remember back to the Barrier Discovery Museum, and I thought, you know what? You know, with my company, Housing Lab Toronto, uh, one of the areas that I'm pushing is research and promoting kind of uh, how to get more family-friendly housing uh, in the downtown core. So I thought, you know what? This is going to be my company's city-building initiative. I'm going to bring a children's museum to the city. So it's a grassroots initiative. There's no government or big corporate support, surprisingly, uh, you know, they, um, I think I was a bit too outside the box for them. And also this, I also launched this as a pilot project. So the Children's Discovery Museum, I approached one of my clients. They own the Garrison Point development, uh, right, right. Liberty Village on Strawn. They're clients of mine. I approached them and said, hey, you've got this 20,000 square foot building. It used to be the municipal licensing office. Do you think I could take a little tour of it? And uh, so I did. It was perfect. And I pitched them and said, hey, do you think you could donate this building for us to use as a pilot project to prove that there is demand for a permanent children's discovery center or a children's museum in Toronto? And Garrison Point, they've got some great, uh, you know, townhomes and family-sized condo units. So we all felt it was a good kind of, you know, relationship. Uh, so they came on board as one of our uh, key supporters and uh, gave me the use of this building. I renovated it. And we just opened up on May the 23rd. I put together a team, uh, an advisory board of early childhood development experts, because I'm just a mom. I yep. know what I know through my experience. So I put together sure. a natural team. And that's how we become a children's museum. We are not a glorified indoor playground. There actually right. is uh, a lot of rhyme and reason. If you go to our website, childrensdiscoverycenter.com, you'll see we've got 10 discovery zones. They all have different themes. And there's a geared specifically to the mind of kids under six years old. So very engaging, very educational, but it's also not a programmed place. The whole philosophy of the place is very, uh, you know, very based on play. It's right. about, for kids under six, it's not about flashcards or a video you can show them or an app. It's about creativity and play and letting them explore. That's how kids naturally are born to learn. So we've really, that's the whole philosophy of this place. It's not a place where you sign up for classes or camps or drop your kids off or not a daycare. It's a place where kids come. And the other day we had a girl, she showed up at 9.30. They left at 4. We closed at 4.30. Wow. <laughs> and there you go. Great kudos to the parents. And it's about letting the kids just play and discover. And because it was so engaging, there are no meltdowns. And so that's kind of, you know, part of my, you know, what I've argued with Jennifer Keysmat and planners and counselors has been, it's not enough to compel developers to build three bedrooms. Yes, obviously, yes. three bedrooms are a housing type that we should have. It's not good enough to just have one bedrooms and small units downtown. I agree. But I also argue that, you know, the, the reason why young families will choose to stay in a neighborhood, whether it's downtown or otherwise, is often they look at is their family-friendly infrastructure. So whether it's parks, it's schools, and I'm not saying Children's Discovery Center is the answer to everything, but I think it's about contributing to the landscape of the downtown area where we have a lot of great bars and restaurants and cafes and shops and everything. But you need more than that, right? You so what's your, what's, your, what's your vision for, this is a pilot project, but what's your long-term vision for this? Pilot 
project. We're open till the end of September or a little bit longer, I hope, if, the, if my clients don't need the building back right away. And the whole goal is to prove that there's a need for a permanent location. I'm actually already in talks with five clients who have various downtown mixed-use developments about a permanent location. The permanent Children's Discovery Center will be um, 40,000 square feet, so double the size we have now. Wow. Space, and I'm actually going to program it for 12 and under. So developmentally, what I've learned from my uh, esteemed uh, you know, advisors on my advisory board is that zero to six is considered a, a developmental grouping in terms of brain development, and seven to 12 is what they call the middle years, the whole other group. And I've got a ton of amazing ideas for the seven to 12 that are you know, very different, right? I mean, my daughter's six and a half, so I'm starting to see, and I'm sure you experience, you'll experience with your kids, that there's a change. Um, mm-hmm. anyway, so the goal is to do the 12 and under and also I kind of have to because my daughter's six and a half and she would kill me if I opened a children's discovery center and she couldn't go so, yeah <laughs> but, uh, but again just in all seriousness there is this demand the response so far has been phenomenal people coming out saying oh my god like we always wondered why there's no children's museum in Toronto and, and again, yeah there really is nothing for young kids that is really yeah like you said i mean if you traveled anywhere else in the world certainly in north america there are ch- great children's museums all over the place i've been to a few of them as well yeah and it's big city like toronto we've got a bunch of museums with kid related programming but like you said most of it is geared for older kids um there's, there's nothing like it in toronto and you go to other cities and these places are just you know packed with kids <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and the other thing I'm doing with the Children's Discovery Center is my, my company, Housing Lab Toronto, we are also going to be starting next month a research laboratory. So Jennifer Keysmat and the City of Toronto are partnering with us. And what I okay. pitched to the City of Toronto was nobody's actually, what I do, measured, studied, quantified what millennial and Generation X housing, urban family housing demand looks like, what the mm-hmm. frustrations are, what the frustrations are. So we are actually going to be launching... So myself, I have a research company I work with called Heads Up. We're actually going to be doing a very rigorous and proper research uh, laboratory and reaching out to all the people who visited Children's Discovery Center. And obviously, if they opt in to our research, I'm like, we've already got this, you know, I already have this database of people like who've come and we'll be approaching them. And if they opt in to our study, we'll actually measure and we'll have our results by the end of the year. And they'll be the first time anyone's actually quantified. Because right now, it's very anecdotal, right? I can tell you my anecdotal stories about my experience yeah. living in condos and I've got friends, right. but really in order to um, advise good policy and planning and, you know, all that stuff that's important for city building, they need to base that stuff on facts. So what I'm hoping is that the research component of Children's Discovery Center will help contribute, again, to city building in a different way. So it's kind of, a, so this initiative of mine has been kind of hitting all different uh, notes. And uh, at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's helping kids, it's creating a great environment, but also, like I say, hopefully it'll help promote and inform our decision makers uh, who are actually the, writing the policies, right? That, you know, the, the, the official plans and all those things that guide uh, you know, how our city is going to grow in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Um, what, what do you think it really is going to take to get more families in the core? The way I see it is that you've sort of got political will, like the politicians, the policymakers, they want to see it. You've got the demand forces, like families, like you said, they want to live downtown. They want to be in uh, family-sized units downtown. You've got the, you know, just the affordability issue where people just can't afford uh, low-rise housing anymore. So you've got lots of things pushing uh, for more 
family oriented housing. But on the other side of the equation, you've got a development model that, you know, you've got to pre-sell 75, 80% of a building before you can get financing. And it's extremely difficult to sell three bedroom units uh, or larger units uh, that are not going to be, you know, finished for three, four, five years. Um, so, that, so everything's weighted towards smaller investor units. And you've also got a lack, I think, of quality schools in the downtown core for families to say, this is, you know, I, I want to be in this area for this school kind of thing. So those are the forces that I sort of see at play here um, in favor and but also opposed to, to it happening. Like, how do you see it and how do we, you know, how do we move towards a better, more complete city where we do have uh, families being, you know, who want to live downtown and, and live a good quality of life and have good quality schools able to actually do that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I agree with you. All of those points that you mentioned are all very valid. I think that in we need a concerted effort. I think that the the policies uh, to date that I've seen have been really just uh, compelling developers to build more three bedrooms. I know my uh, former counselor, Adam Vaughn, is now our MP. Uh, wonderful gentleman, you know, uh, very big picture thinking. And, you know, he was pushing a lot of that, you know, getting developers to build three bedrooms. And the irony at the time was, yeah, I'm like, we got, we got our three bedrooms. There were like 800 square foot three bedrooms geared to investors. We'll rent them out to three U of T students, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so right. you got what you wanted. And I'm not saying it was ill-formed necessarily, but I'm, what I'm saying is that I think a lot of the knee-jerk reaction, unfortunately, in our industry, because there are no facts, there, there's no research to really, everything so anecdotal is that, oh, get the development industry to pay for it, uh, which I think, the deve- I think everybody has to work together. It's a coordinated effort. I, I, you know, the, certainly the developers, um, you know, when I worked at Streetcar on their project in the Upper Beach, small mid-rise infill, I think those are the perfect opportunities to integrate larger family-sized units. Uh, the, the buildings get delivered faster. The streetcar project was less than 50 units. Uh, we had uh, three-bedroom suites, uh, 12 to 1,300 square feet with 250 square foot outdoor spaces that are like a backyard. They were, the average price was about $700,000, and we sold out in about a month. So, you know, I, I wouldn't argue that, you know, necessarily large suites won't sell. The big selling feature, obviously, is a great location, great schools in that area, good school district, but it was really the layout. We were able to – we listened to – Real people were able to deliver the product that actually they wanted. Uh, price wasn't an issue because if you look at the average price of a home in the beach, relatively speaking, brand new condo was, was made it affordable, right? It's that affordable toehold into a high demand neighborhood. So, uh, but I believe that up in the city side, I mean, that's this is a whole other discussion, right? About fixing the schools and cleaning the parks and that whole thing needs to be looked at more seriously. Because you're right, schools, I know in my neighborhood, I live in the Bathurst Key neighborhood, and, uh, you know, a lot of the condo families here, I see them. They'll stay for JK, SK, but then once it, you start to get into grade one, you know, and plus for school, they're leaving this area because they don't feel the school is very good. Um, and uh, if you look at the rankings, you can see that the rankings aren't good if you believe in those rankings, but just the sense is that the schools aren't good and it's driving their housing decisions, right? They're moving yep. to their field or... Uh, so that's one thing. I think uh, on the municipal level, what the city planners can do is that there are tools that they can use to encourage, um, you know, the development of more larger suites. And it's not compelling developers to build them. There are other tools, whether it's development charges or levies or, you know what I mean, or, or giving a break on development charges and levies and fees. Because right now it is quite um, to a developer's disadvantage to build larger suites, put it that way. 
because DCs are higher, just there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, for mid-rise buildings, for example, there's a lot of uh, sunk costs, which are the same whether you're building in a 50-story building or an eight-story building. So again, if the, if the city is very serious about its um, commitment to mid-rise, uh, neighborhood infill, there's things that they can do, policy tools and things that they have under their control that can encourage and facilitate more mid-rise building. Because uh, right now, like I said, a lot of it is skewed. If you just look at the the the, the numbers, it's just skewed towards you know doing the larger scale projects. Do I think families are going to live in you know 80 story towers downtown? No. Uh, do I think that this means there's no potential for family housing in high rises? No, I don't believe that either. I think that we just need to get a bit more creative. The project that I live in, we have a 20 story, 25 story tower with an eight story podium building, and uh, I'm in a ground floor unit. That's about 1,100 square feet. So again, it's like a townhome unit. We've got some terrace units that are larger. So there are opportunities to integrate those. Yes, for the larger buildings, you do have to wait longer. So it's that whole thing about how do you get families to wait five years, you know, three, four, five years for a bigger building. So you're right, there are some other issues. But I think that uh, it takes a, you know, coordinated effort in order to, um, you know, in order to kind of create the conditions that will, you know, facilitate or encourage more families to stay downtown. And I also think that, ironically, bad transit and bad infrastructure, perhaps, you know, for our generation, we're considering saying, no, we're not going to commute in for two yeah. hours from Milton. So, ironically, yeah. the bad infrastructure is actually should compel more families to stay downtown. I mean, I know personally I put more value on my time, and I'd rather spend that hour with my daughter than sitting on a highway so I can live in a 3,000-square-foot house in Milton that yeah. you, know, you use the backyard once or twice a year. And I always thought it would be interesting to actually talk to people who go out to the suburbs, to the dream house, and, to, and, and, be, and look at kind of why did you move out there? Often it's, oh, I have a backyard, so my kids can run around, I can have barbecues. And then actually actually measure, so how many barbecues do you have a year? Right. And how often do you just let your kids run in the backyard? I, I always thought that would be kind of interesting, you know, people's aspirations versus what yeah. reality is. And then the other reality is, so how long do you spend in your car? commuting and because there's a value to your time right yes but yeah so it's um you know i don't mean to evade your question but i think there's an opportunity here i see to kind of hit it from many different angles but it has to be a coordinated effort like mm -hmm. you know affordable housing all of these things you can't just put it all in the backs of the development industry uh, they're no. part of the solution but they're not the only solution yeah um, and then there's a whole thing about political leadership and political will and that's a whole other conversation right okay. yeah yeah, absolutely. What do you what do you what are your thoughts on the the planned new school for City Place? Do you think that could be, um, you know, could be a model if if it works well? Do you think that will be that that will sort of become a beacon for families to to be yeah. going to that school? And and do you think it's gonna? Do you think it could be a model? Like, will will that be a wake up call to the city to say, wow, we need more schools, we need more family-oriented planning downtown. Yeah, I mean, the irony is that, you know, all these condos have been built and often the, for example, even basic things like traffic lights and stuff. I'm always amazed how late they are in coming. Although it's, you know, the development applications were submitted five, six years ago. You know how many units are being built. You know how many parking spaces you required the developer to build. You know how many cars there are going to be. So it's always, it's always funny when the city acts like, oh, we had no idea. <laughs> right. You have all that information. You guys just didn't plan it well. I mean, I can just 
you know, you see all the developments downtown and the frustrations that just the traffic because they haven't put the lights in yet. And finally they go in, you know, five years after everybody's moved in. But with schools, I think it's a, I always find it interesting that people have been shocked. You know, we know we've been building the whole time I've been in the business, especially the first 10, 15 years. It was driven by that young first-time buyer in their mid-20s, late 20s, early 30s. And it always amazes me that nobody could have had the foresight enough to say, hey, you know, these all these young people living downtown, they're going to hook up. And they're going to have kids. And nobody, you know, seemed to kind of think about that. And the City Place School, I think, is a great example where the clock is ticking now for the city. They are now rushing to get the school built because in their original agreement with the developer, uh, there's firm timelines and deadlines. And ironically, six, seven years ago, when we first got pregnant, we were living at Tip Top Loft, I was like, oh, the City Place School is going to be amazing. By the time my daughter's four years old, the school actually was supposed to have been finished two years ago. Yes. Way back when, thinking, oh, this will be perfect. It's going to be a brand new school. She can, by the time Maya's JK, she can go there. And I remember, obviously, she didn't. And, yeah. uh, and now they're scrambling. I think the model is yeah. great in terms of integrating community center. I mean, the Waterfront School, which is our local school, they already have the the water the community center integrated into it and the daycare. It's like it's a wonderful model and very makes sense, right? There's a lot of overlap of infrastructure and yeah. much more useful facilities. So I know that when they open, if you just look at the numbers, and I know my uh, friends at Concord Adex, they call them the Concord Babies. There is a ton of them. And oh, yeah. Chomping at the bit to find a good school because the quality of the other schools downtown, I'm not talking about the quality of the teachers. Uh, I'm talking about the, the buildings, the infrastructure, their old buildings, they're crumbling there. I mean, we're lucky down here at the Waterfront School, it's a relatively new building compared to the other buildings, but definitely there's, um, you know, there, there's issues. And I think that the City Place School will, uh, will be a great model, I think, for, uh, for other, you know, kind of neighborhoods. And it's about... Um, Hopefully, you know, it's about the proper negotiation with the development, you know, with the developers to uh, to bring these kind of initiatives about. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, we could go on and on, I'm sure, about this. It's a very interesting issue. Um, last sort of topic I want to cover in our conversation is around just uh, given the fact that a lot of condo investors listen to this podcast is investing in the condo market. And I want to ask you if you're an investor yourself, uh, if you've invested, you know, you've been in the business a long time, if you've, you've got stories to tell us and, um, you know, sort of what, where do you see for the individual condo investor, where do you see the opportunity today? I think that, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the low hanging fruit for most investors are the smaller units along the subway. The reality is, is that when you have a new households forming, whether they're new Canadians moving from overseas or whether they're, you know, the young kids growing up and leaving the family home, the reality is often that the smaller units are what they rent, right? It's either because of your age and you're single, like why do you need a big place? And often it's driven by just costs, right? So I think that and being on the subway, transit, those are all still good investment locations, regardless of, uh, I don't think we're, you know, somebody could argue, say we have a glut. I mean, we've had We've, we've had no, you know, rental construction or, you know, uh, purpose built for so many years and uh, we're still playing catch up. So, yes, there's been a lot of uh, rental stock or new condo stock uh, that has been delivered and will be delivered over the next few years. Uh, have we reached the saturation point? Um, I don't think anyone can kind of predict that. Because remember, if you look at the demographics, which I study a lot, the youngest generation of the baby boomers are only now starting to graduate or are they in the middle of and or finishing college and university? 
So remember, they're that next wave of renters. So right. I'm not worried about the over the next two, three years, all these investors with the rental units and who's going to rent them. Because again, if you study demographics, which I do quite a bit, and life cycle housing, yeah, maybe these kids will graduate and they'll live in the mom and dad's home a bit longer, which we know the stats can data shows us they tend to be more late bloomers. But inevitably, they do move out. Yeah. So I think that that's fine. I think that the, uh, the, the, the investment opportunity that fewer investors look at are the larger suites. I understand, obviously, it's a bigger commitment in terms of money and down payment, but, uh, and especially in mid-rise buildings. You know, most of these buildings are sold to uh, end users, as I've mentioned, um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that there is not a demand for a three-bedroom rental or, you know what I mean, like other larger rent yeah, housing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that that's kind of a bit of a sleeper, especially those small mid-rise buildings. You know, most investors tend to flock to the, the big towers on the subway. For obvious reasons, yep. like I just said, there's transit. But there are a lot of great neighborhood mid-rise infill buildings, which are also uh, very well serviced by transit because they are in neighborhoods. Um, and uh, there actually are not a lot of investors who buy in them because the developers either don't uh, cater to them, you know. And the projects I did with streetcar developments years ago was all mid-rise infill buildings, eight stories, no less than yeah. 100 suites. We never proactively just sold exclusively to the investment community. We sold first and foremost to the end users and real people in the neighborhood. But we always had about 20% of our suites sell to investors. And again, these are long-term investors. And these are the ones that are kind of a bit more forward-thinking and realizing like, okay, you know what? There's not much competition in this building. There's only a handful of rental units. So it's a good investment. Whereas, you know, often you buy these big towers, I'm not saying it's a bad investment, but, you know, you're competing with 400 other people for tenants, right? So I think that's a bit of a sleeper for investors if they take the time and understand neighborhoods. And there's a lot of great small infill projects that are being launched uh, in, our, in our wonderful neighborhoods. So I think that's an untapped opportunity that uh, for the astute investor who wants to diversify, I think that that's still a great area of opportunity. Very interesting. Jeannie, thank you very much for your time today. really appreciate it. Hopefully um, you enjoy that, and hopefully we can have you on the show again soon. Um, if people want to f- get a hold of you or, or learn, learn more about Housing Lab Toronto, what's the best way to do that? Um, HousingLabToronto.com is my, uh, my company website, and if you do have kids under the age of six, please come support our, uh, our pilot project childrensdiscoverycenter.com. We're open every day, 9.30 to 4.30. And Andrew, I invite you and your family to please come as well. And, Definitely. Uh, experience that your kids will love it. It'll be uh, quite a, a great experience for them. So, yeah, it's definitely on our summer to-do list for sure. Great. Well, thank you for, for reaching out. And uh, you know, hopefully this helped uh, kind of, uh, you know, I'm happy to share my experiences. They're just my opinion, but um, <laughs> as you will. But, no, it was great. It was a lot of great insights. Uh, I think we learned a lot here. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we very much appreciate your time uh, taking it out today. So thank you very much. And hopefully we will have you gone soon. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Andrew. Okay, bye for now. All right, bye-bye. All right, there you have it. That was my interview with Jeannie Shim from Housing Lab Toronto. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you learned something from today's episode. And once again, for all the show notes on this episode, links to the Children's Discovery Center and Housing Lab Toronto and Jeannie Shim, just head on over to truecondos.com forward slash Jeannie, and you can get all the show notes there. And once again, thank you very much for listening to the show. Thank you for your support, your emails, your comments and messages, and of course, your reviews. Um, That's right. Reviews are very important to the show, and they really help get the word out there about the show. 
So if you have been listening to the show and you uh, enjoy it, uh, or if you don't enjoy the show, let me know what you think and leave me a review on iTunes for the show, and that would be very much appreciated. Okay, until next time, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to the True Condos Podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com.